Welcome to the NM Talks Healthcare Podcast. On this podcast, you'll find thought-provoking insight into critical topics surrounding the healthcare industry. Each episode features Nelson Mullins healthcare attorneys and special guests who offer a variety of experience in healthcare. My name is Heather Miller, and I'm a healthcare transactional and regulatory lawyer in the Boca Raton office of Nelson Mullins. Today, I am joined by Mike Siegel, a partner in our Miami office, and Ed White, a partner in our Columbia, South Carolina office. Mike and Ed focus their practices on value-based care and healthcare transactional matters. I consider them the kings of value-based care. They have over 70 years of combined experience practicing law in the healthcare industry and have been eating, sleeping, and breathing value-based care since its inception. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the evolution of value-based care and the opportunities presented by it under the new regulatory framework. So Mike, can you give our audience a primer on the meaning of value-based care? We hear it discussed all the time, but I think a brief explanation by you would be helpful uh, for our audience. Certainly, Heather. Value-based is essentially a healthcare reimbursement system that ties payments to quality and cost outcomes, focuses on patient needs, including issues of health equity. Value-based care systems are designed to provide higher quality healthcare services for patients, while simultaneously lowering the cost of care. Value-based care has emerged, actually, as the inevitable alternative to the fee-for-service payment system. Mike, everyone in our industry is talking about value-based care. We hear it all the time. But why is it so important today? What makes it more important now than, you know, as we discussed it a year ago? Well, the continuing aging of our population makes it very clear that if we don't take action to change the fee-for-service concept of paying per procedure, without much, which doesn't show much regard to quality or outcomes, the cost of caring for our population, particularly the elderly, is going to absolutely totally explode over the next decade. The number of Medicare beneficiaries is expected to increase significantly during that time. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is commonly called CMS, recently announced that it intends to have every Medicare beneficiary patient, that's everyone, in some form of value-based care system by 2030. They are definitely focused on value-based care. Mike, the two of us, we've worked together for almost two decades, and you have been immersed in the healthcare legal market for over four decades. So hearing CMS discuss alternative payment models really is nothing new. For some reason, value-based care seems to be getting a lot more attention than some of the alternate payment models that we've been uh, hearing about over the last decade. Who do you see focusing on value-based care? Heather, you name a healthcare deliverer service these days, and at least to some extent, they are focused on value-based care, some of them virtually exclusively. What do I mean? I'm including physicians, hospitals, payers, digital health, telemedicine, home health, nursing homes, 
hospice, the list goes on, you name it. CMS is experimenting for years with value-based alternatives, including accountable care organizations, starting with the MSSP program in 2011. And they have bundling opportunities in orthopedics and oncology, gain sharing, partial risk, some taking partial risk, and in some cases, full risk. Things change in this area almost every day, but it moves more and more towards the idea of risk-taking. Um, risk-taking, but at the same time, having an opportunity for success. And truth is, the largest healthcare companies in the country are investing billions of dollars to dominate the value-based care space. You read about it almost every day. So with so much money being vested in value-based care, I really think it's important for our audience to understand how to implement value-based care strategies that comply with the new federal regulations, which are really, you know, a reason why value-based care has become such a buzzword in our industry. Without the recent changes to the regulations, we probably wouldn't even be having this podcast today. Can you give our audience some insight on, you know, some of these strategies and why we're here today talking about this? Sure. At the end of 2020, CMS and the Office of Inspector General, which is called OIG, jointly published revised regulations. Those regulations were intended to modernize the Stark Law, which we'd been waiting on for years, and the anti-kickback statutes in significant part to acknowledge and deal with issues involving value-based care. The regulations as written loosen the restraints, allowing for certain innovative business models called value-based enterprises to be created and used in healthcare, provided they're based on value-based concepts. We at Nelson Mullins believe that there are some great business opportunities open to those who have a firm understanding of the value-based enterprise concepts. My partner, Ed White, has become an acknowledged nationwide expert on value-based enterprises. So at this point, I'm going to defer to him to unlock the door to our audience for using value-based enterprises as business strategies. Ed, similar to Mike, you have been practicing law in the healthcare space for about three decades. And I know that you have been so immersed in value-based care since value-based care and VBE and all these buzzwords have really hit our industry. I think our audience really would benefit from understanding okay, I know what value-based care is. I get the concept. I understand the definition of a VBE, but what do we do with this all? You know, what, what are some details that you can provide to the audience on the modernization of the Stark and anti-kickback statute relative to value-based care so they can understand how the modernization of these regulations is leading to new business strategies that can be quite lucrative uh, for healthcare providers? 
Sure, uh, Heather, thank you. And I think the, the best place to start is just with a, a quick overview of these new regulations. As Mike indicated, we that we have new Stark regulations and new anti-kickback statute regulations. They are designed to protect compensation relationships. And these new rules are designed to allow providers to facilitate uh, transitioning away from fee-for-service to value-based reimbursement. And there's basically what I refer to as three models under the regulations. And there are both sets of regulations were drafted in tandem uh, and, and they, they work in uh, parallel structures and, and I refer to them as models. The first one is a care coordination model. Second one is a partial risk model. And the third one's a full risk model. And we won't go into a lot of the details of each one of these right at this moment, but would say partial risk and full risk, you start achieving the, the, the most benefits under these new regulations. And partial risk can be as simple as, uh, you know, physicians being at risk of 10% of, of the compensation in a, in a payment relationship. That's not unlike a lot of paper performance relationships that are in the marketplace today. So it's not a, a big leap to get into these arrangements and models. Now, the hub in these regulations of this whole concept of plugging into these new uh, protections is something called a value-based enterprise, and it's the centerpiece of the regulations. And to create a value-based enterprise, you basically have to have two or more participants uh, pursuing at least one value-based purpose, and the regulations enumerate four purposes. And the first one is care coordination, the second one is improving quality, the third one is reducing cost, and the fourth one is transferring from fee-for-service or transitioning from fee-for-service to value-based payment arrangements. Any one of these four objectives will, will, can be the centerpiece and will qualify you for these new protections. Um, you have to be conducting at least one value-based activity, which you're free to create and design on your own. We like to refer to the value-based enterprise as your own innovation center, and your efforts have to be directed at a target patient population defined by your value-based enterprise. There's no attribution or, or, or assignment. You get to, to basically define the scope of your target uh, patient population. You need a governing board monitoring and adjusting the program, and you have to have governing documents describing how the value-based enterprise intends to achieve its value-based purposes. And each provider uh, participating through a participation agreement is afforded the protections of these new regulations. The key distinctions of the new regulations, particularly as you move through the partial risk and towards the full risk models, is you have a, a, a substantial ability to reduce compliance risk. There's no fair market value requirements for compensation for purposes of start or the anti-kickback statute in the partial risk or full risk models. There's no prohibition on compensation varying with the volume or, or value of referrals. And you have the ability to disproportionately subsidize startup costs in, in the care coordination model of bringing the providers together, whether that's technology, uh, uh, care management programs uh, and workers, um, and you know, uh, consulting and legal fees, et cetera, to put together the value-based enterprise. And then the, the value-based enterprise can allow, you can allow for the restriction of referrals among all the providers that are participating and there's two exceptions to that patient, the patient's choice to, to go to another provider or the patient's needs can be uh, better met by another provider.
So, Ed, clearly the government with these regulations is signaling its focus and dramatic shift away from the fee-for-service reimbursement model that has dominated healthcare for decades. What do you see as the impact of the modernization of these regulations and the additional safe harbors and exceptions and movement away from some of the key criteria that we have had to work with for years in structuring healthcare relationships from a legal perspective? We, we see the value-based enterprise as a concept you can use as a business strategy and don't just view the, these regulations as more stark exceptions and more anti-kickback statute safe harbors. If you create this concept of a value-based enterprise and you, and you, you bring providers together working towards value-based purposes and, and engaged in value-based activities, you know, protocols and processes, et cetera, to improve the quality and, and efficiency of healthcare, then you're really creating a vehicle to, to leverage the value proposition of the providers to approach and negotiate with payers with value-based concepts and value-based uh, revenue streams that, that come with that. You reduce the compliance risk, as we, we discussed earlier. Uh, the most notable cases in recent times, you know, enforcement actions, the Toomey Hospital decision, the Bookwalter decision, and the Halifax case, each one of those involved a violation of the fair market value standard or the prohibition on payments uh, varying with the volume or value referrals. These cases would not exist if you're in a value-based enterprise operating under these new rules. Uh, you can also subsidize the startup costs and certain care management costs uh, to build out your provider networks. As you mentioned earlier, you can restrict referrals to other participants in the value-based enterprise. When you're working towards common uh, protocols and you know, your, your activities and processes to you know, create you know, higher quality care and more efficient care, uh, you you're also can overlap with clinical integration standards. So to the extent you have independent providers, you're, 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 you're clinically integrating and, and you're providing uh, protections from antitrust uh, violations as well. It's a platform to allow independent providers to remain independent and, and, and leverage the ability of being able to contract and, and work in value-based inter, you know, enterprises and programs to enhance their revenues. And I think the probably the most one of the most important points that's not on the face of the regulations is is to use the value-based enterprise as as its own anti-kickback statute safe harbor in a very general sense. And, and what we mean by this is you can use the value-based enterprise and its activities to document the intentions of the parties to protect against against potential anti-kickback statute risks for ownership interests and other relationships not directly covered by these new regulations. In essence, you're documenting your intent for something other than to pay for referrals. Now, most people, when you talk about the anti-kickback statute safe harbors, there's sort of this, this belief that if you're in a safe harbor or you have to be in a safe harbor, uh, that, that you're safe, but that's not true. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily safe. Under this one purpose test that courts have fashioned, if one purpose of an arrangement is to induce referrals, then the government and, and key TAM relators have taken the position that supports a violation of the anti-kickback statute, even when you're in safe harbors. 
there was a recent decision in the U.S. versus Holland case that basically pushed back on that and said, even if if one of your purposes to uh, induce referrals, it's not a violation of the anti-kickback statute unless there's a knowing and, and willful violation of the statute. You know, CMS and OIG have both said in these new regulations that there are more protections against overutilization, which historic law is primarily aimed at, and uh, paying compensation for referrals with the anti-kickback statute is designed to, to prevent but there's more protections that go that's those two harms than anything they can put in regulations when when providers are in risk-based contracts. There are inherent protections there. And when you're operating in a value-based enterprise, you're not only documenting your intent to work towards value-based purposes, but you're in the format that the government has said creates the most protection protections against the fraud and abuse concerns. That these regulations are aimed at. So we see a value-based enterprise when when you have relationships that won't all fit in the anti-kickback statute and and you want to move forward. We see as this a vehicle in a very general sense is to document your 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 actions as not being in violation of the anti-kickback statute. And when we represent clients in setting up value-based enterprise and documenting their intentions, we we go through a series of steps to help clients. We'll, we'll assess their financial relationships, including the ownership and con- compensation relationships that are not directly in safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute. We'll review the terms of compliance with the Stark Law. They they have to fit in the Stark exceptions, but if they're fitting in the Stark exceptions, then 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 we believe they're creating a model within this value-based enterprise that that it's going to be very difficult for the government or relator to. To, to make a claim that they're violating the anti-kickback statute. We'll also review the terms of the contracts and, and the value-based enterprise, its purposes, its activities, and the compliance plan it has in place to annually assess its activities. And then we'll provide advice, written advice to a client that based on our review, that there, there's not a knowing and willful violation of the anti-kickback statute. And that's essentially what courts recently have said um, that where there's good faith reliance on 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 the reasonable advice of counsel, then it's not in any anti-kickback statute violation. So we think, in, in addition to leveraging and moving yourself towards the, the value-based care revenue streams that are emerging out there, uh, you can provide significant protections uh, for all the providers that are participating in the value-based enterprise. I think. In line with what you're saying, the combination of the recent Holland decision with the new regulations really allow for opportunities to those that want to innovate in the healthcare industry. And I think the next few years are going to be a really exciting time for us. So Ed and Mike, I appreciate you being part of today's podcast and enlightening our audience on value-based care. And to our audience, I hope you enjoyed our discussion. To learn more about value-based care and related business strategies, feel free to contact Mike Ed or me with questions. You may find our contact information on our website at www.nelsonmullins.com. That's N-E-L-S-O-N-M-U-L-L-I-N-S. Thank you for joining us today and please look out for the next episode of NM Talks Healthcare.